Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today is my pleasure to host Anne Kennedy to discuss her new book, Historicizing Post-Discourses, Post-Feminism and Post-Racialism in United States Culture. This book is published recently by SUNY Press, and Anne is here to speak to us about the book itself. I found this book to be a complex and fascinating exploration of our collective understanding of questions of racial and gender equality or lack thereof, and the theoretical interrogation of these concepts, particularly the concepts of post-feminism and post-racialism. The book examines these concepts throughout a variety of American cultural venues, television series like Mad Men and The Wire, movies and films like The Help, The Blind Side, and Perfect Stranger, popular nonfiction like Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In and Hannah Rosen's The End of Men, and political speeches and rhetoric that have been integrated into our cultural often and into our culture, often without historically clear context. I hope to dive into all of these topics with Dr. Kennedy this morning. But first, I want to ask Anne to tell us a little about herself and how she came to this project of historicizing post-discourses. So Anne, tell us a little about yourself. Um, well, I'm in Women's and Gender Studies at University of Maine Farmington, which is the public liberal arts uh, campus uh, for the university system. And I came to the project, um, well, it's been a long project. It's been, it's been a almost 10 years getting it published, but um, I came to the project partly out of a a sense of my own uh, unease with the way that uh, the generational narrative of feminism sort of played itself out in popular culture, Um, and the way that people talked more generally when I was having conversations with people about race and feminism and those histories. And I saw it reflected, you know, it, it occurred to me that people get most of these histories from popular culture. Yep. Um, they don't um, necessarily even, we, we sort of don't even explicate that for ourselves in terms of critical thinking unless we're in a classroom. And so people repeat um, sort of truisms about feminism or truisms about uh, race. Um, And I think that that tells us a little bit more about the culture, sometimes how we talk um, generally um, than than maybe academics. I think that's. You know, I don't I, disagree with you at all. I, I agree yeah, completely. I think that's a controversial statement. So I'm really always interested in how people talk about race, how people talk about feminism, particularly in in you know in contrast to, uh, you know, my own experience, my own individual experience, and also what I know um, of those histories. And so, post-feminism um, as a as a uh, side of analysis has been around in, in feminism for a long time, almost immediately 
you know, I talk in the book and in the introduction that post-feminism really comes into circulation as a term in, in, in the 1980s. And I don't think that that's um, an accident. I think it comes... Uh, I think it's political. I think it it comes into being um, partly because of who is given voice, um, people who have made some progress, who have stepped into a kind of um, cultural power, have the ability to tell stories of, of feminism and of racism and uh, to place themselves in a position to know about those histories. And you can see that play itself out also with post-racialism. But what interested me is that no one had, you know, why post-feminism, there's a long history of sort of interrogating um, it as a term. I want to be clear that people had taken it up in, in relationship to racism, but they had not really sort of fleshed out the relationship between these two terms. And I think that's what my book attempts to do is to say these two terms are political terms from the 1980s. They emerge and um, they emerge in the, in the context of these changes that I think that um, – we can see most clearly in popular culture, but they are obviously part of a political institutional structure as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I mean, and I think that you do a good job of trying to get at some of the um, origin of the terms themselves and then to some degree how they evolved um, and possibly went in separate directions. Um, and and you also, you do a really fine job, I thought, in the introduction and the conclusion of these these fascinating bookends that you use, the Francis Fukuyama's End of History, um, you know, in the late, in the, you know, sort of late 1980s and the 1990s, as well as noting Obama's speech about race that you integrate early on in the book um, from March of 2008. And then concluding with the the sort of discussion that you have um, about the Charl Charleston, South Carolina massacre, um, that the sort of um, tumultuous integration and then separation of the terms themselves um, post-racialism and, and post-feminism. Um, and so I, I want to talk about all of that, but I'd also like you to lay out for the listeners, um, you know, sort of what the thesis of your book is um, beyond, you know, sort of these two terms, but how they operate. Well, I think that um, the thesis of my book is that they operate in a particular um ideological fashion to uh, act as a kind of cover for uh, institutional structures of racism and sexism, but also that they, they, they operate from a position of, what's the word I want? Um, they create communities um, through their... Um, attachment to particular kinds of stereotypes that don't get fleshed out as stereotypes. And I use the, I don't use the word stereotypes a lot in the book, but I think that, I guess what we could say familiar images. So 
one of the things they do is, for example, create good feelings among uh, women readers around issues of, of sort of empty rhetoric around um, agency, empowerment, um, without connecting themselves to any structural uh, connecting those terms to any structural significance. So we get to celebrate women's empowerment without asking about things like the wage gap. <laughs> um, so we, so they, they, one of the things that they do is that they're very good at using uh, images from history and sort of re-signifying them to create um, these sort of audiences uh, that both take up that that rhetoric um, in this sort of celebratory fashion, or sometimes, um, as with sort of white male injury, um, take it up as in emotive ways that um, uh, aren't analytical. Um, and we don't ask ourselves, for example, is there, uh, what is the history of white male injury? Um, there's actually a lot of evidence that white male crisis is something that goes all the way back to the 19th century, where um, whenever we try to talk about institutional racism or sexism, that white male crisis sort of disrupts those conversations. It comes in and... Um, says, you know, oh, we're in crisis. And I think you can see that now. I mean, in the things that are happening now where people are talking about the Confederate flag and, and the history of the Confederate flag and saying, well, the Confederate flag actually came came about, you know, in the 1960s when it was, you know, that's when it really came to symbolize um, this kind of uh, historical loss. Um, before that, it, it it didn't have the same significance. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, and it and I think also it didn't have the same um, presence. That, yes, that yeah. it, that that it it sort of got re-signified, um, which I think is a lot of what you're talking about in the book is the sort of where does where does the sort of um, laudatoriness of, you know, being a post-racial society or a, a post-feminist society um, as defined as opposed to in actuality uh, happen? Um, and, and I think, you know, your, your book does a really good job of sort of trying to get into some of the places and the and the ways that we we experience this in popular culture um either visually or you know through books or um in a variety of venues but also where does you know sort of the as as you sort of talk about the um masculine injury where does that come to to the fore in different ways and how is it constructed um i think that's i mean that's a lot of what i was taking away from your book um so i'm going to ask you now to sort of explain a little bit more precisely um what the term post-feminism means these days, as opposed to perhaps when it was first um, constructed or coined, and also post-racial. Well, I think both terms, when they originally appeared, um, appeared as sort of 
closure statements saying we've gone through these periods, the, the women's movement, we've gone through this period of the civil rights movement, and now that's over and everybody is enjoying equality, or at least they have the opportunity, um, and we can move on to other issues. Um, and so I think that was the original significance of the term. And I, but I think one of the things we uh, should realize is that post-racialism has a, sort of a, a less clear history. Um, it is originally, it's most used after Obama is elected president and he becomes kind of a symbol of that closure. Um, he has to separate himself from that civil rights generation and the sort of emotions, um, I guess, emotions of anger and guilt and resentment that many whites have around the civil rights movement um, and sort of turn that into a kind of good feeling that by electing him. And I, you know, I experienced this in conversations with people where they would say, well, you know, my students don't even realize that all the presidents before Obama were white. And like, well, I'm not sure that that's a good thing, right? I mean, um, and so, you know, that kind of, it, it doesn't matter now anymore. That's past, the past is past. Um, we can celebrate it. Um, we might have been once, you know, as Obama himself in a more perfect union states, you know, we might have had this um, horrible history, but now we can talk and have, you know, a better understanding of each other and recognize that lots of bad things happen and they're over. And I think, you know, his speech is a little bit more complex than that, but I think he was definitely trying to reassure um, white audiences that he would be a universal president and not a president to uh, be anti-racist, uh, to, you know, to um, sort of embark on a dismantling of white supremacy. And I think uh, he did that, right? He managed that. Um, it's, a, it's a complex rhetoric. And one of the things that I'm interested in now is how it becomes kind of an ideology, right? Um, one of the things that academics do is say, well, people talk about it as we're in a post-racial era, we're in a post-feminist era, but what they're really doing when they sort of say that is putting forth an ideology about what feminism was and what um, the civil rights movement was about. And you have critical race theorists and feminist theorists coming in and saying, um, those, you know, let's interrogate that ideology. Um, when they're developing this history, um, how are they then redefining feminism? How are they then redefining the civil rights movement? And I think um, in the civil rights movement, you see that most clearly with the appropriation of Martin Luther King. Right. You know, I mean, I think, you know, when you have someone like Sarah Palin who can appropriate, I don't want to discuss her in the book, but when you know when, you know when you have you have Ronald Reagan, you know the content of char of character argument is taken up by anti-affirmative action legislation uh, legislators. Um, Ronald Reagan would appropriate uh, King's arguments. Uh, people in Hollywood would appropriate King's arguments, and uh, work them not for. Um, anti-racist ends, but for individual opportunity ends, 
right? This argument that it's all up to the individual now. And you see the same rhetoric with post-feminism. Post-feminism in particular is very um, individualistic in some, in some ways. Um, there's, it, it, it manages to, I think, um, repress a lot of the class differences and race differences that, um, have plagued feminism. Um, Sarah Pajansky argues early, I I can't remember when her book was published, but um, very early that part of post-feminist ideology is a kind of backlash against women of color uh, critiques of feminism and sort of an opening up of feminism to an internal interrogation um, of the ways in which it has supported uh, racist structures. And what post-feminism does is sort of, for you know, uh, a, a sim- you know, simplify feminism so that any sort of intersectional analysis and intersectional coalition um, is stripped um, from that history. I, I mean, I, I think a lot of the way that you're discussing it, which I, I think is uh, accurate, is also about this sort of airbrushing, right? Um, and flattening. Um, yeah. That, that I mean, you, you talk about this in, in the sort of first section of the book, but it also is woven throughout in terms of sort of understanding that these these historical movements, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, um, were not, you know, one monolithic enterprise. They had they had conflicts, internal conflicts that are often obscured, particularly in the you know sort of in the post period or in the post approach to them. Yes. Um, and I think that that's also important in understanding that, you know, there were, there were conflicts, but there are also certain goals that were that were sort of the driving force. Um, but that those goals sometimes also excluded, particularly with regard to feminism. Um, yes. And so I, you know, I, I think that the, the historical component of your book and the role of history of history in understanding is really important. Can you talk a little bit about the role of history in an, in our understanding of these concepts of both race and gender um, and the way that they those concepts are then taken to sort of become these ideologically closed circles? Like, okay, we're done. We're, we're not racist anymore because we're in a post-racial society because... Barack Obama was elected president. And, you know, and we're not living in a society where women aren't equal, because women can certainly be equal if they just, you know, they just try hard enough, right? Yes. Um, yes. And they just conform to and, and operate at in the same way that men do. Um, so what is the role of history in our understanding, not only of the concepts, but, you know, how we live our day to day lives in this context? Well, I think that one of the, the, um, the well, I th- a good example from the introduction, I think, is the Murphy Brown yep. example, um, because I, you know, those of us who are Generation X um, grew up with with you know Dan Quayle, Ronald Reagan, so 
we actually had a, a sort of firsthand experience, um, probably diverse experiences of those moments in which uh, post-racialism and post-feminism were being kind of articulated, for, you know, um, explicitly in, in the media. And the Murphy Brown character, what I found interesting about that, a couple of things, I don't know if people remember, but um, Dan Quayle sort of said, you know, uh, this Murphy Brown has a baby on her own, a single mother, and she's professional, and she's a television character. <laughs> and Dan Quayle comes out and says, oh, you know, she's leading women down the wrong path. She's a bad role model. And obviously there was conflict at that moment. Um, but what people don't remember about those moments is, first of all, that apparently, I don't know if this, you know, what the connection is between the storyline. I didn't look into the production of it, but there was an earlier story in the late 1980s that wasn't about a white, uh, a white newscaster, but was apparently a story about a black newscaster who, um, was in her mid-30s, decided to have a child on her own. And this was quite controversial. It was even written about, you know, in national newspapers. Um, and um, the term post-feminism is, you know, explicitly used to talk, oh, we're in this post-feminist era. Um, what does it mean that a black professional woman chooses to have a child on her own? She's a bad role model. She's a betrayal of... Um, the civil rights generation, because, you know, she's making a bad choice. We say women have choices. Um, and so post-feminism is all about choice, but making the right choice. <laughs> and um, in particular, you know, and but also what you can really see in that moment is the way that Murphy Brown character kind of whitewashes that story. And uh, takes all reference to, you know, the civil rights generation, all reference to um, uh, black women's uh, particular history of mothering and uh, sex, sexuality and society out of that story. The other thing that sort of gets misremembered historically in that moment is uh, that Dan Quayle, made those statements following the Los Angeles riots after uh, the Rodney King incident. This is, this, is, uh, this is important, that at this moment when police brutality, racist police brutality is front page news, the vice president of the United States chooses to focus on black mothering as the problem. Right. Um, and he universalizes that as a kind of um, and white women are going down this road too. Um, feminism is part, you know, this is, you know, feminism is part of the problem. So one of the things that post-racialism and, and post-racial and post-feminist histories does in, as part of that simplifying process is displace um, the complexities of of, uh, of historical moments, where what should really be important in that moment is not Dan Quayle's discussion of Murphy Brown, which is the popular entertaining story, um, and one that we're already geared toward in some ways because we're already geared toward judging women. Um, that's what we focus on. But what really should be asked about that historical moment is 
what does he gain by displacing questions of institutional racism in the Los Angeles Police Department onto black women? And so I think that... I don't know. Is this answering your question? I think so. I, I mean, I think because you, I mean, you're you're getting at also the the sort of structurally separating um, capacities that that post racialism and 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 post feminism have sort of moved into. I think, um, yes. and that's yes. you know that's a lot of what you're sort of emphasizing in the book is that the that the idea of you know sort of racial equality or anti-racism and gender equality in in almost inevitably are connected in so many ways in in fact and in you know popular fictional uh, depictions but that in in sort of um analysis of our both factual ex- existences in reality and also our popular culture consumption that these these two sort of ideologies are going in opposite directions or they cannot be combined in a way that allows us to sort of think about them in in combination because they are structurally being teased apart from one another um, yes and and used to and, and post feminism is, is used to displace um, a lot of racial critique, I think. Yeah. 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 And, and so, I mean, I think that your example with regard to the Dan Quayle incident, um, and Murphy Brown and the overlay of the fact that this, that was a fictional sort of depiction that, as you say, also was whitewashing the actual depiction of the critique of the African-American newscaster um, is also in this, you know, sort of cycle of what was going on in regard to Rodney King and the L.A. and clearly not only the Los Angeles Police Department, as we know, you know, historically, lots of police departments have a lot of these issues as well. Um and and so I, I think that you did, you know, you the, the historical issue is also interesting and that's nineteen ninety one, that's nineteen ninety-two, um, which is, you know, sort of when I think you also are talking about in the book, you see some of this divergence um with regard to feminism and anti racism, um, and sort of moving into separate camps for analysis. Yes, I mean, I think what's, I mean, they do move in these in these sort of opposing directions. And I'm not sure if that I think that has somewhat to do with uh, priorities, perhaps in terms of scholarship. Um, But I also think um, I always look at Rebecca Walker's piece where she explicitly names post feminism, you know, she's not a post feminist, uh, post feminism feminist. And I think that is a really key moment for, because she both identifies um, uh, this is a problem, an ideological problem. It is a, as an ideological uh, uh, configuration and at the same time connects it to feminism and says it's a kind of feminism. And she doesn't say it's white feminism, which is what I think a lot of people would call it today, but she is actually naming it as a type of feminism, an appropriation of the feminist movement. Uh, uh, And I think that's important um, 
almost all scholars say it is a type of feminism, but it's a type of feminism that's individualistic. Um, it's a type of feminism that um, rejects um, an intersectional analysis very often. Um, and at the same time, though, you have a third wave feminist movement that is beginning to take up intersectionality. And Rebecca Walker is one of the, you know, her piece, Becoming the Third Wave, really articulates that um, black feminism's frustration with post-feminism, but also the way in which civil rights movement is being articulated through black masculinity um, as a kind of universal that um, black men's problems are central. And uh, black women at this time, in terms of scholarship, are doing a lot to recover the black feminist origins of, of the civil rights movement and um, uh, the ways in which uh, black women were central to the organizing principles of those movements. And so um, I think what you see is a, a kind of uh, scholarship that moves away from thinking about post-feminism just as activists are moving, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, where post-feminism and post-racialism kind of become these separate entities for interrogation. But at the same time, um, you see activists um, becoming more uh, interested in the ways in which they're exclusionary discourses. But that doesn't make its way into the scholarship very often. Yeah. And I mean, I think that this question of the individualistic approach, particularly with regard to feminism and then post-feminism also, and I, I, I don't want to use this term ironically, leans into um, sort of the, the sort of individualistic tradition in the United States with regard to you know, sort of the the bootstrap um, mythology um, that, you know, you you could do it on your own because you have the capacity to do it on your own, um, which, you know, you, you sort of highlight some of that in some of the popular culture um, examples that you provide within the book, uh, which is, you know, this sort of, quote, American dream um, that then post-feminism sort of is, in fact, co-opting or, you know, sort of extrapolating into um, that I think is really important to think about. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, and you brought it up a little bit, um, where does masculinity, especially white masculinity, fit into this discussion of cultural experience and narrative and understanding of post-racialism and post-feminism? Yeah, well, I think what's interesting is I think part of the ideological work of those discourses is uh, convincing us to recenter masculinity. Um, and I think anyone who's taught women's and gender studies in the last 10 years understands this demand. Um, um, this idea that I think that part of the misappropriation of uh, feminist inclusivity. Um, and a concern for thinking about masculinity. And I think that's all 
you know, comes from feminism. I think it's there. Um, but it's misappropriated in ways that say you must center sort of white masculinity. And I think that one of the, it doesn't say, you know, you must center white masculinity. First of all, it collapses, um, race into gender, um, in a, in fairly essentialist ways, I think. Um, so that, um, People make you, know, you have people and part of the I didn't get too much uh, get into this too much in the book, but you do have um, in the early nineties um, a kind of misreading of what's happening in schools, for example. And I can't think of her name right now. Oh, Christina Hoff Summers. Summers, yeah, yeah, um, whose work has been you know thoroughly reputed in many. Uh, by many scholars, but nobody reads that. Um, <laughs> um, and she herself, she herself recently, my understanding is, I, I think I only read one article about this, but she herself has repeated, repudiated some of that work saying that she didn't take it, uh, race into account enough. Um, because basically what she argues is that boys are the, are the, the ones who are disregarded in schools and that's why they're suffering and that's why they're, you know, that they're dropping out and, um, they're seen as discipline problems and this is the fault of feminism. And that's a big leap. Yes. You know, I mean, um, that our concern for girls is somehow marginalizing boys and that, feminists made this happen. Um, and that's part of the post-feminist trick as well, that if somehow um, things are happening to boys, it must somehow be the fault of feminism. Um, I, I, part of being in the post-feminist era is uh, assuming this kind of zero-sum game. Um, and I think that uh, part of what the research shows from educational research is, is that we should be much more concerned with some of the racial gaps that we see in education than the gender gaps. And that she has even come back and sort of said, yeah, I should have focused more on race and class. Um, and really, it shows how post-feminism and post-racialism work together in, in particular ways to turn problems of race and class into problems of gender. gender. And I think that's one of the significant factors in thinking about masculinity is when we're talking about masculinity, you know, we have to, we have to bring in an intersectional analysis to that as well. Um, because it's too easy for people to fold statistics into this gender binary and ignore the fact that a lot of what we're talking about is actually racism against, um, men of color, black men in particular, black boys. And um, if we look at the racial gaps between white girls and young black women, we see, you know, black women are disciplined much more often in schools, but girls, sorry. And um, so this is the work of post-racialism and post-feminism. And it is work that um, has to do, you know, it's work, I think, post-racial, uh, studies of post-racialism do a much better job of teasing out those kinds of statistics, um, whereas um, scholars who have traditionally worked in the area of post-feminism tend to focus a lot on the ways in which white femininity gets centralized um, in relationship to white masculinity and doesn't ask maybe enough questions about the centering of masculinity and feminism today. 
And I think it's par for the course that in this moment, um, you know, this particular political moment, we're being asked once again to empathize with white masculinity. Um, I mean, I, I feel that. I don't know if you feel that, but well, I, I when, when you that, have announcements about, you know, reverse affirmative action lawsuits potentially and so forth and 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 limiting immigration um, of particular people from particular areas, uh, I think that there is a, a sort of recentering, as you say, of this question of masculinity, particularly white masculinity but ignoring the fact that it is an identity. Yes. And yes. I, you know, I think that's a lot of what your, your book does a really good job of trying to tease at that idea of, of masculinity as an identity so that, you know, being an African American or being a woman, which is always referred to as identity politics. And this is a sort of ongoing political discussion right now um, that, you know, that, that white masculinity is also identity politics, but it's the quote default. Yes. Yes, and I think that um, it is also, I think one of the really, I mean, I try to use uh, Sarah Ahmad's philosophy because, it, I mean, I think she is just amazing. And uh, to as a kind of frame for the book to think about bad feelings and good feelings. Yes. And I really am interested in the ways in which popular texts kind of, reinforce I don't want to say they create because I think it was already you know it's already there in the default this empathy toward uh, white masculine you know white men and I don't mean that we should you know obviously I'm not speaking in an individual frame here um, but I do think that a lot of um, the ways that post-feminism works is a lot of the emotional energies of post-feminism are directed toward empathy toward white men to having conversations with white men and that's you mean one of the, the thousands of new york times articles interviewing trump voters in nebraska yes yes <laughs> yes yes, yes. sorry and, I interrupted you but it's, it's all it's already there right in the kind of um well i i'm i teach in maine and i I'm not sure I want to say this, but I will. Um, one of the, even before Trump was elected, um, Sue Collins, who is being lauded right now, um, quite rightly, for voting against the, the Health Care Act um, or the Wealth Care Act, as you might call it. Um, it you know, she's a Maine's a senator, but during the primary, I think it was during the primaries or maybe during the general elections, she sort of came out and said, well, I can't. Uh, support Trump anymore because I thought he was going to mature. I thought he was going to um, grow or you know evolve. Evolve is a really popular word these days, um, and I was so frustrated because on the one hand it's an act of individual consciousness, uh, conscience that is important. Um, on the other hand, the way that she's talking about him is not as as a, a powerful. Um, 70 year old adult, but as a boy, as a husband, you know, oh, well, I married him thinking that he might grow into being a responsible partner. Uh, and I'm just, and I just, I, I, you know, it's that kind of um, 
emotional connection, I think, that post-feminism really reinforces in popular culture. And for me, Mad Men really does that. Um, that it teaches us to love um, Don because we share in all of his pain and suffering. I mean, he's a complex character, and white men are complex characters to us. Um, and I really just, I'm not sure that the rest of us are seen as fully complex characters in popular culture in the same way, as deserving of empathy for our suffering, um, as, um, you know, and I think that's structural. Um, and I think it's partly because white men continue to, to dominate global media and production and to be the writers and the showrunners and the producers and directors. Um, and so their perspective gets out there. Even when it's, you know, even when they're bad characters, they are seen they're as the center. They're, they're seen as, yeah, and they're seen as human and, and complex. And we... Uh, and others just said, you know, even in Mad Men, while you have complexity, you also have this sort of, sort of idea that, um, women who see Don for that complexity and who love him anyway, are the best characters, right? I mean, they're really the best feminists in some way. <laughs> Um, because they understand that, that, you know, Don's complexity and that he doesn't, he doesn't, he's really trying. And I, I so I think that, you know, I don't want to sort of put it into a kind of, I don't want to be sarcastic about it because I think it's, it's a real, you know, as we're, as we're sitting here, it's a real political problem. It's an institutional problem and it's, it interests me a great deal. Um, where we direct our emotional energies and um, who gets our, our empathy and sympathy because I think that we have an empathy bias, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I think, yeah. I mean, and, and you cite, you know, you cite Brett Martin's book, Difficult Men, um, and, the, and the fact that he concentrates the book on, on the men and that there, there continues to be a focus on the, you know, sort of the male antihero um, in this this time of peak television. Um, because I, you know, I've, I've written about Mad Men. I, I find a lot of these characters intriguing. I also, you know, ask the question about the women. Where are the women? Where are the, the women who are the central characters? Um, and are they, in fact, presented um, with complexity, but also empathy? Um, and so I, you know, I certainly think that, um, this, as I said, this era of peak television has been fascinating because it has provided the viewer with the opportunity to see many, many complex men. Yes, Um, yes. And, and probably far fewer from my own analysis, um, women but also complex women and and that you're allowed to also dislike them or you know have your emotions towards them change over time um my favorite example obviously is a you know sort of privileged white woman alicia floric on the good wife um and you know how the audience's opinion of her has changed over the years um 
But I, you know, I'm curious about as well the work that you do in this book, paying attention to popular culture. Um, You know, you talk about The Wire, you talk about Ally McBeal and Grey's Anatomy um, and Mad Men. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about um, sort of why the particular examples that you provided in the book, um, the movie The Help? Um, which again has has been criticized rather substantially, I think, for you know sort of this kind of whitewashing of the women, the white women's role, um, and the the empathy that is promoted within the film. Yeah, I, I think that for me, I mean, I'm very interested in the first chapter and and how that history how the history gets told because I think. Um, as I said, um, while, you know, part of the preoccupation in feminist scholarship right now is telling feminist history. And generationally, I'm very uncomfortable with the generational narrative, which I bring up with Lean In uh, when I talk about Lean In, because I think her, her attempt to sort of say, well, there wasn't any feminism when I was growing up is just uh, somewhat ridiculous. And... Um, so I think that uh, when I look at Mad Men and the Help, I'm mostly interested in how they actually are uh, referencing history not through history, but through representations of history um, from that particular moment. So, for example, I, I look at the ways in which the help seems to reference to kill a mockingbird and imitation of life, which is the, you know, that's, uh, the Cirque film, which is actually a remake of, of a 1930s film, um, about, um, a, a white actress and her, uh, black housekeeper. And I really, um, find the Cirque film really fascinating. And I think it's interesting that it's never, it's never brought up. In, in the book because it um, would have been something that all of the uh, characters in the book would have been aware of. Gone with the Wind is brought up. So what's interesting is that it seems to be narrating history partly not through historical research but through popular films and uh, uh, books of the time. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's the popular culture of the time. Yeah, so it, it reinforces it reinforces those images rather than undercutting them so it it keeps that particular sort of uh white default perspective on the 1960s and i think that matthew weiner purposely does that in some some contexts but i think it also traps him in this kind of um I'm interested in referencing, you know, these films from the 1960s and getting that feel and what you get in that, when you get that, that kind of authenticity, um, what you're also getting is appropriating, um, those, those feelings that, uh, white audiences might've had in the 1960s when they're watching these films. And so you're not dismantling, um, those images, uh, as much as I think, I think he thinks he, he might be dismantling those images, but I think he's actually, um, uh, reinforcing, 
the emotional connection that uh, many people might feel for those images. And I think that's partly how post-feminism, post-racialism works, is by uh, kind of focusing on a stylized history, um, the way we wish maybe things could have been, (laughs) Um, that... um, uh, in some sense. And also with Mad Men, I'm really interested in the way in which political correctness comes into being. I haven't talked about that much in this interview, but um, political correctness is definitely part of the ideologies of both. Um, and you can see it everywhere in popular culture. And I think that the ways in which there's this kind of shared language um, around political correctness and feminism and anti-racism is uh, indicative of people not questioning um, ideologies, but rather reinforcing them and also um, trivializing them, demeaning them. Um, So you see that very clearly in Mad Men when Don is kind of, you know, he's he's both, uh, as Kent Ono uh, was the first to point out, um, a kind of post-racial character. Um, he's never seen being explicitly, you know, he's never seen engaging in racist acts. And so, and I think it's season three when Roger is doing Black this face performance, uh, which is one of the these key moments where Don gets up and leaves, like he refuses to watch. And that's, you know, a kind of indicator of his post-racialism that he finds this... Um, unacceptable. Unacceptable. But he goes into the bar and, and one begins to think maybe he finds it unacceptable because it's not his own story. Um, that, that he tells this story about how he wasn't allowed to use the bathroom at this country club that he worked in. And so he used people's trunks. And I really felt that this was a, a kind of moment in which Wiener was trying to racialize Don. And other people have talked about this kind of racialization of Don um, as a kind of um, stand-in for, for, for blackness. And, uh, you know sort of misappropriating um, segregation um, in ways to represent a working class white male. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly... <laughs> I mean, I certainly understand the analysis. I'm, I'm not totally persuaded by it, but I certainly see it in context of his, his own outsider status. I mean, he's cast from the first from the first episode as an outsider um and rachel menken um pegs him as that um in part i think largely because of his class and i think you're right um in in that regard uh but i also think that it's it's indicative with regard to don that he thinks when he leaves a room that that's appropriate to indicate his dismay Right. Yes. So he left. He left Roger's performance, and therefore he, you know, could sort of knowingly say, "I'm not participating in that." The same way he left the meeting with regard to the proposition for Joan 
to sleep with um, the Jaguar dealer saying, I'm not going to participate in this. We shouldn't do this. It's wrong. But but in the leaving of the room, as opposed to making sure it doesn't happen in both cases, it still happened. Yes. And uh, I think at one point there's also the scene where he describes their racism as frat boy antics. Um, so, again, a kind of trivialization of what's happening um, in character, but also, uh, as, we po- as we're pointing out, a, a repetition in the, in the series that um, sort of um, absolves Don from taking a position um, or uh, engaging uh, with what's happening around him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He exempts and himself th- from it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that um, one of the things that that Don represents, uh, and I think we see a little bit in the help, is this kind of absence of racist patriarchy. Um it never sort of gets named. And uh, that's one of the problems I have with the help is there's just, there's not very much about her father, but we're honestly supposed to see her father as somehow different than the other racist of the book. And this is where to Mockingbird comes in. So rather than sort of interrogating the system, um, the help, uh, sort of, um, again, directs our emotional energies toward, uh, the guy who's anti-violent, uh, you know, against blacks. Um, so this idea that he, she has this moment where she's very proud of her father because he's against, um, he says something like, uh, you know, I, I don't want to, you would never treat, uh, the black people who work for me that way. And it's this moment where she doesn't have to have the difficult conversation. She doesn't have to be the feminist killjoy as how um, Sarah Maud would put it. She doesn't have to yell at her father and say, you know, we're part of this uh, uh, racist system. You prop it up. You... Um, you exploit people, um, so that we can live this life, you know, and of course that would be, I mean, I'm sure that, um, Catherine Stockett would say, well, that's just ridiculous. But, um, at the same time, what, what interests me more is that we're allowed to keep our, our good feelings for him. Um, uh, it's kind of like the good feelings that we, you know, people want to have toward Thomas Jefferson. Um, but I, you know, since the the subjects I teach, you know, bring up these conversations and it's just amazing to me that, um, you know, headlines will be like, Oh, Thomas Jefferson. And there was a whole movie, I think, right. Where Thomas Jefferson was supposed to be in love with With Sally Sally Hemings. Yes. And I, and it just, it's a complete, uh, it is post-racialism. I mean, it's post-feminism, this notion that she has agency, that, you know, that this was anything other than rape, that this was anything other than slavery. Um, 
And she had a choice that she. Yeah, 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 and and I think that this this whitewashing of history, this this providing of agency to um, uh, to Sally Hemings is 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 at work in these popular contexts as well, um, where you see um, the help trying to salvage. Um, some kind of good white masculinity from the past. And my point isn't, well, I think, yeah, I mean, that we have all of these emotions attached to To Kill a Mockingbird. And I love that when I was finishing this, I didn't get to, you know, look at it. But, you know, that the, the original version of To Killing Mockingbird was actually... Um, I mean, I think we all know why it had to be changed. I mean, the original version. Um, oh, the draft, her draft. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, showed him as being not a noble uh, white character. And I think we like those characters. Um, and they feel emotional. I shouldn't use we. But I think, you know, that, that the, the dominant popular culture um, needs that sort of complexity and uh, and repetition because it reinforces uh, particular kinds of historical biases. Yeah, and I think it also feeds into the general cultural, you know, sort of um, understanding of heroes that we have, yeah, particularly yeah. in the United States. I mean, other cultures and other countries have heroes as well, but we have a particular understanding, I think, of the idea of, you know, sort of the good person, um, the heroic person, often the self-made person falls into all of those sort of concepts, Um and, and I think, you know, I think that's a lot of what we see in popular culture narratives. Um, and when they get upended, it's very confusing. And we don't know how we're supposed to feel, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yes. Um, but in, in this context, I also wanted to ask you one more question in terms of understanding not only sort of these, these ideas within popular culture, um, of uh, the the frames of sort of re-signifying or re-situating um, the concepts of post-racialism and post-feminism, but also how they connect to the broader sort of neoliberalism as a problematic. Does that make sense? I think so. I mean, one of the, I mean, I think neoliberalism it's part of it's part of that individual dream that I, I think I skipped over as part of your question earlier, but I don't think it's a uh, I don't think it's as controversial or even uh, that interesting to say that you know neoliberalism part of uh, its success in the United States um, is dependent on a kind of white racial frame um, that when I talk to students about, if we say neoliberalism is, and the best definition I've had, the simplest definition is the retrenchment of the state. Um, This idea that um, we're all 
uh, as Margaret Thatcher might say, there is no such thing as society. Um, and uh, there's, there's no uh, concern for the social welfare of citizens. Uh, and I think that other people have made the argument um, much better than I have that that in the United States, part of the focus on individuality and individualism, um, and I would say particularly in post-racism, uh, post-racialism and post-feminism, is a kind of um, displacement of the fact that this is anti-blackness. Um, that uh, when you know that this is this this is similar to the Dan Quayle moment that we're not going to talk about institutional racism. Um, we're not going to talk about the history of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Um, we're going to talk about um, why why poor black people aren't worthy of uh, the benefits of the state. And I think that that's really where post-feminism and post-racialism come together in neoliberalism to kind of celebrate individuality and agency and what I call, uh, well, actually I'm, I'm borrowing a term from uh, someone else, uh, called uh, shiroism, mm-hmm. um, that sort of is an assimilationist discourse. Um, and so I think part of neoliberalism that we should look more at, you know, examine more is the assimilationist notion that this is, uh, that directs our energies toward heroes. Um, because I think that that is, is not just a popular culture notion, but is structured into, um, how our society uh, thinks about politics, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Trump is a uh, Trump is is one of those. Uh, you know, he's a character. He's a hero to many. Um, Hillary Clinton, though, I would say the same. And you know, you could even say that about um, President Obama. That. We like to call our, our politicians by their first names. Um, we vote for, I think, individual personalities too often yep. and not public policy. <laughs> and, um, uh, and I think that this is, uh, this is part of that um, individualism and part of neoliberalism where um, we don't think structurally. And uh, popular culture throws up I mean I'm always one thing I didn't examine in the book and it's partly because of my own suspicion of those narratives is the the action hero yeah super uh, superhero yeah I'm working on um, some of that right now <laughs> and I see that I I understand the need for that but I also am very um, suspicious of this idea that um, that that we need more of that. I'm not, I'm not I'm not really sure that that more is you know that just because we have an appetite for it, it it should get filled. And I think that's part of neoliberalism, right? Is the consumerist aspect is that um, 
it, it feeds us more of the dominant narrative. Yeah. Rather than unsettling our expectations. And it encourages us to to see individual stories as moving um as changing structural organizations in ways that just doesn't happen. Um and uh that's why I talk a little bit at the end about Margaret Thatcher. Um, and it, I think nothing was more shocking to me than finding out that uh, many feminists saw her as a feminist simply because she is a powerful person, but she is obviously, you know, one of the architects of neoliberalism. Yeah. Um, she completely destroyed, uh, you know, uh, many women's lives. And um, I think, uh, and, you know, Ronald Reagan, the same. Um, and I think that's where you get into problem with generational narratives of feminism, because um, you have post-feminism being heralded at the same time that you have powerful women like Margaret Thatcher stepping into power, um, Sandra Day O'Connor appointed by Ronald Reagan. And uh, that generational kind of celebration of any woman in power is automatically assumed to be a feminist or to be some kind of icon of how far we've traveled. And you see that with post-facialism and Obama. But at the same time, I mean, I was raised by a working class mother and she sat down on the floor and cried when Ronald Reagan was elected president. She knew exactly what was going to happen. Yeah. And I, I think that that we need to bring back some of those, you know, we need to bring back some of that feminist activism where yeah, you can't be. Um, I think too often we're like, oh, you're a feminist if you say you're a feminist. I get that. But I don't think that you can be Margaret Thatcher and be a feminist. Well, it's also, you know, it's sort of a, a negation of the personal is political. Yes. Um, I yes. mean, if, if, if it's not if it's not the connection of the personal with the political and what the political is structurally stopping you from doing or doing against you potentially, then it becomes, you know, it's just the personal. Yes. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, I, I think that's part of the particular post-feminism situation that I often find myself talking to students about and also, you know, sort of seeing in, in popular writing as well. Um, yes. Choice feminism and so forth. So I, you know, I, I think it is, it's, it's also a complex, it's, it's complex, right? That's, that's one of the difficulties, like, I can say I'm a feminism, a feminist, but what does that mean? Um, and w what do I do in terms of employing that? Um, or I can say I'm anti-racist, but what does that mean? Um, yes. And I, and I think that, you know, your, your book is really interesting in terms of trying to show also where some of these narratives just keep coming back and re resituating and reifying some of the same ideas that I think are also rooted in a lot of the neoliberalism, um, that, you know, the issue around class that's rarely paid attention to an aspirational projections and film and television and so forth um, that I think are really important as well. So may I ask you, Anne, what are you working on now? 
Well, um, actually, that is what I'm working on now. I'm cool. I'm very interested as a follow up to these um, current uh, debates about economic justice and identity politics, um, and I am thinking about uh, trying to write um, a kind of alternative history of class. Um, and what I mean by that is is drawing on uh, sort of uh, feminist histories of class as opposed to popular narratives of class that okay. I see being deployed right now. <laughs> um, because there's always been this, um, there's always this, I mean, I think part of, part of what post-feminism post does that is a truism, I, you know, all scholars have pointed this out, is uh, center uh, white middle-class femininity and um, neoliberalism. And so I think one of the things uh, that feminists can do is to recover their own past um, in terms of thinking about economic oppression and thinking about the sort of radical resituating of, of class um, and away from the empathy toward the white working class, but rather saying... I mean, my own history is growing up in, in 1980s working class Alabama and seeing white coal miners who are now part of the, you know, who are now re-emerging re um, as a kind of effective, authentic white working class masculinity like The Wire. Yes. Uh, Stand the wire. Um, again, as as the authentic working class, and in Maine we have Governor LePage, who represents himself very often as the anti-politically correct, anti-elite, authentic working class. And he's definitely and, authentic. And I would like to, I would, you know, and so I would like to sort of recover a past in which. Um, that exclusion, um, which is a deliberate exclusion, it's not uh, an accident uh, of of all peoples um, from that working class designation, um, and the ways in which feminism did do some of this work, um, particularly black feminists, but also working class feminists, um, have always kind of articulated their own class politics and what that would mean from a kind of um, intersectional positioning. And, and so I'm very interested in the ways in which, um, there aren't very many working class women in, in this culture anymore. I mean, in terms of popular culture. No, because, you're right. I mean, I look back and I'm like, well, if you look at Dorothea Lange and, 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 uh, the great depression, or even when I was growing up, you looked at uh, Norma Ray. Exactly. I was thinking about Norma Ray and nine to five. Silkwood I heard stuff, about yeah. May nine to five, but um, so I, I'm really kind of interested in what happened to working class women, um, where they went. Um, Hannah Maybe. Rosen completely eliminates them from, from you know. Um, I mean, they're doing okay. I mean, she just says they're not interested in feminism. <laughs> But that's where my feminism came from. So <laughs> I'm a little curious uh, about that. Well, and it, you know, as, as I understand a lot of uh, movements that the white working class women, as well as African-American working class women, have been, you know, activists, um, yes, yes. And, 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 you know, my, my grandmother was a union organizer. <laughs> um, 
And, and that was the kind of, those were the people who were in the working conditions that were unacceptable. So I think you've got a great project. Will you come back on the New Books Network and talk to us about it when you finish it? Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Where can somebody get a hold of historicizing post-discourses, post-feminism and post-racialism in United States culture? Uh, You can get it from SUNY Press. Okay. I'm sure that they would love for you to buy it directly from them. All right. Um, It's also available at the usual places. I'll put in a a plug for Powell's books. Okay. um, Because it's, uh, I'm in Oregon right now. And, and, and Powell's is always a favorite of, of many academics um, and just readers in general. So thank you, Anne, for joining me today on the New Books Network. And, um, and I really enjoyed talking to you and reading your book. And I appreciate you being with me today. All right. Thank you. Sure.